As we are getting into this series this month, what I want to do is let you know just a little bit of what to expect over the next couple of weeks. Now, last week I took a significant amount of time right up front to do some complaining. And I complained with you about my frustrations from 2020. And let's just be honest, 2020 was a mess. I don't know what your experience of 2020 was, but for every single person, there was something about the year that was a mess. Maybe for you, everything was brilliant and awesome except for one thing, but that one thing still made it a mess. Last year, of course, we all had glowing, bright eyes. Oh, 2020 is going to be the year of awesomeness, and yet it so much wasn't. And as we look back at the year that was, I look back into the Bible, and I recognize that in Scripture, time and time again, God brought hardship on his own people so that they would turn to him. That's one of the reasons in 2020 we looked at the book of Judges. It's one of the reasons we looked at the books of Peter. We need to recognize that discipline and hardship sometimes come on God's people first, and sometimes more aggressively on God's people because he has a word that he plans to do in our hearts. And so what I want us to do this month is to try to make sure that work gets done. I want to try to make sure we listen to what God was trying to say to us, that we dig into those lessons that we should have learned over this past year that maybe we didn't learn. So this is how it's going to work. I'm not going to stand up here and just complain to you a whole lot. I did that last week, and I got it kind of out of my system. Now I want to begin looking forward. But before I can totally look forward, I have to recognize that I believe God had some lessons for me to learn that I'm not so sure I learned yet. It's something that all of us have to do in order to move forward, but myself included. I want to make sure that I have learned everything that God has for me in the year that was so that this next year can be more about him and less about me. So, what I decided to do is to bring you along on a journey with me of not you hearing all of my thoughts on the matter, but the strategy for this next month is that I am going to take each week, we're going to cover our core values, we're going to look at the different things, but we've got some questions to answer that we can't answer by ourselves. I'm going to put them up here on the screen. These are some of the lingering questions from 2020 that we have to learn in order to move forward. What does it mean to put God first when earthly allegiances are so strong? That's a big question. What does it mean for me to actually put God first when there's so many earthly allegiances? Or this next one, what does it mean to be a church family when so much divides us? Or what does it mean to grow when I'm weighed down by so much? A lot of what we experienced this last year was burdensome, to be sure. And when you're burdened, it's difficult to grow. And finally, this question, what does it mean to bless others when I feel under attack? The truth of the matter is, these are the same four core values we address every January. Every single January, we talk about what does it mean to put God first? What does it mean to be a family? What does it mean to grow spiritually? And what does it mean to bless others? Let me remind you of that this morning by looking at our first core value, We use the metaphor of air to describe it because it is the most important thing in our lives. It says this, in every aspect of my life, God comes first. His word is my only authority. His son is my only salvation. His glory is my greatest desire. I give him the first of my every opportunity. In every aspect of my life, God comes first. You can look at this past year and ask yourself all kinds of questions. In my social media experience, did God come first? In my political opinions, did God come first? Or the second one, is his word my only authority? Or is the news media my only authority? Uh, Is social media my only authority? Is my neighbor down the street my only authority? His son is my only salvation. Is it really true that I'm relying on Jesus to save me? Or am I relying on some political power to save me? Is his his glory my greatest desire? Do I actually give him the first of my every opportunity? These are questions we address every single January. And I tell you what, this last year, my heart has been scarred and burned by the fact that I want this to be true, but I don't see it true in my own life 
And if I'm blunt, I don't see it true in a lot of people around me. What does it mean to put God first? Well, here's the deal. Over the next couple of weeks, what we're going to do is I'm not going to give you my opinion. I'm going to weave a little bit of my opinion in there. But what I want to do most of all is to take you on a journey where I interview other ministry leaders in this town and find out what lessons they learned from 2020 about these basic four concepts, our four core values, including today with what it means to say God is my heir, God is first in my life. I interviewed James Foster this week to try to learn from him what worship looks like in their church context, what worship looks like for them, and also what lessons he learned about worship, what lessons he learned about putting God first in his life as a result of 2020. So what we're going to do is I'm going to play you a clip from that interview, and then I'm going to come back and talk a little bit. Then I'm going to play you another clip, and I'm going to come back and talk a little bit. And all month long, we're going to use the insight of other ministry leaders to help us get our church on track, to help me get myself on track. And along the way, we're going to see what God's Word has to say about it, too. So I want to turn to that video clip right now. Here is James Foster. Hey everybody, I want to introduce you to Pastor James Foster. He is the pastor of Living Truth of Christ Church here in Lafayette. He got it started a number of years ago. He's the founding pastor and he's still the pastor, which is a testament to uh, the family of that church, still appreciating his ministry. Uh, they've had a lot of great things that have happened in the last number of years, but one of the things that I've seen from their church is that they're a church that is willing to step out in faith and trust God when they sense that he is leading. And so um, I've asked James to join us to talk about what it means to put God first. And so, uh, James, let's start by, sure. um, tell us just a little bit about yourself, first of all. Introduce yourself a little bit, and then uh, we'll get into some questions for sure you. Sure thing, sure thing. James Foster, and I'm married to uh, my wife. <clears throat> We've been married about uh, 40 46, seven years. It'll be 47 years this year. And we have four daughters, all girls. And uh, the girls uh, flipped the script. And now we have four grandsons. <laughs> so enjoying the four grandsons. I uh, grew up, both of us grew up in Geary. Uh, came down to Lafayette uh, as an undergrad at Purdue University. After graduating from Purdue, I uh, decided to work for Purdue. So I worked at Purdue Calumet for a couple of years. Came down to the main campus after that and uh, became an administrator for the residence halls. Uh, in the meantime, God calls me to, uh, to uh, preach the gospel. So I hung on to the Purdue job, accepted uh, the training, went to some seminary, uh, uh, seminary extensions, and uh, began to learn some things about being a preacher of the gospel. And God used me to uh, be a preacher of the gospel for a couple of churches in town here before I was called a pastor. And so I've been pastoring since uh, the year 2000. But one key thing for me, Jeff, is God got my attention when I was 13 years old, and huh? I was made the uh, assistant superintendent of Sunday school. And so <laughs> he, he had me studying his word since then. And so although I was working uh, that secular job at Purdue, uh, I just had gotten accustomed to being in God's Word, uh, steps of the way there. You've well. always been engaged in some form of ministry since a long time ago. Long time ago. We won't ago. talk about numbers of years, but <laughs> okay. uh, it's, been, it's been a while. <laughs> now, you've been in our church before on a Sunday morning. You've preached in our church before on a Sunday morning. Yes. You know as well as anybody else that there's a significant difference significant in difference. the way our two churches operate. And in fact, the way the, the, the cultural expression of black churches versus traditionally culturally white churches have expressed themselves. So how about let's start off by you sharing with me and with our congregation, what does the word worship mean in your context? Uh, the first thought that comes to my mind when I think about what worship means in our culture, in our church, is uh, celebration, celebration of God. We celebrate God. And then I think of tradition, because traditionally, I look back on the churches that I've uh, participated in, even as a youth and so forth, and traditionally, uh, we've celebrated God because our ancestors celebrated uh, deliverance from slavery. And so it just kind of connects with that in terms of, boy, who wouldn't celebrate a God who can get people out of slavery sort of thing? And so uh, kind of from that. And then 
uh, with that, the cultural kinds of things that are there, the, the music, uh, the style, and, the, and there's a certain style of preaching that, that goes on and that sort of thing. And, uh, but at the same time, uh, understanding that the important thing is, boy, let, let's keep the focus on God as much as we can. Yeah, I, I think a lot, of, a lot of white guys don't understand that there's a wide variety of church expression in every culture, in the black, cho- black church culture, in the white True. church culture. Even though there are white Baptists and white Presbyterians and white Pentecostals, there's a wide variety of that in the, in the black churches too. And I would label you as somewhat tame. Yes, I yes. can see why. I agree with that. I yeah. agree with that. <laughs> yes. So, so, so give us a little bit more explanation of what worship looks like in the African-American church more broadly. Sure, we're, we're, we're pretty spirited. Uh, when I say spirited, uh, boy, we're, we're okay with, with the drums, the tambourines, in terms of the, 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 uh, the music worship and that sort of thing. And so we're pretty spirited there. And then uh, people can get loud, and so people get energetic and loud and emotional and that sort of thing. And a lot of preachers uh, preach from a certain level of emotion, certain parts of the, the message that they bring and that sort of thing. So uh, from a uh, cultural perspective uh that that strong high level expression is is just part of what what happens there and people feel at home with that and there i've had i've had people give me feedback if they don't see it they don't feel it they don't sense it uh they haven't had church and so we get uh we, we get that feedback and we see what people are ex- looking for and experiencing there so to me uh knowing that we're not to be people pleasers at the same time we still want people to feel comfortable in God's house of worship. And so that's what in a lot of my church experience, worship is the thing that you do before the message starts. And worship is the music that someone on stage is doing some singing, or maybe a small group of people on stage are doing some singing. And the people in the congregation, depending on the church, um, are either singing along or they're watching. That brings to mind participation. We're looking for people to participate. People are accustomed to participating with who's ever singing. And if a preacher's preaching, they're particip- giving him amens and you preach a brother and those kinds of things. And so there's that participation uh, that we're accustomed to in our culture in terms of the congregation and what goes on in the church there. And uh, again, the emotion can come out because some people can get up and jump and dance and run the aisles in some churches and that sort of thing. So that participation is kind of important to people. So worship for you includes um, celebration, it includes music, it includes um, spirited music, drums, um, (laughs) people dancing, people jumping up and down, maybe sometimes yelling an amen here or there or more. Yes. Um, But also throughout the message. Yes. There's uh, participation all the way through the message. So worship for you means all those things, right? All those things. But... That's all pre-2020. What did, it, what did it look like this last year for you? What did worship look and feel like? Completely different. Completely different because we focus on live streaming. And so since we're focused on live streaming, uh, what we're doing right now is I and the praise team are the ones at the church building. In October, we came from the shut-in point of view to live stream at the church. Demetrius does a welcome, and I do a few announcements before we do uh, a communion. One of the things that we don't do that I'm looking forward to getting back to when I know that we're not going to get back to everything we did in 2019, but one of the things that we were doing in 2019 was uh, having a portion of the service where people would express thanksgiving. Mm. And so I wanted people to, hey, you come meet God at the door with thanksgiving before we go into the courts with praise. And so we would give people a chance to tell us what you're thankful for, what things you're thankful for. And don't say, don't just stick to the material stuff. Give, give us some way God, how God is, is changing things in your life and that sort of thing. As so, part of the gathering, people would just, you'd ask them to stand up, give them the microphone, let them talk for a bit. Exactly. Exactly. So that's part of the gathering. That was part of the front end of the gathering too, because I picture people, once they do that, then they're a little bit more involved in worshiping yeah. <laughs> in, in terms of the worship. Uh, Sunday morning worship that goes on there too. When we first got back, and when we yeah, when we first back in the building in October, we had about twenty people the first Sunday, about fifteen people the next Sunday, and the numbers continued to dwindle. And now we're down to just a handful of people come once in a while, and so everybody does not come all the time. So that sounds incredibly different from twenty nineteen. Incredibly much different. less participatory. Um, it sounds like celebration might even be difficult. Um, 
almost zero interaction with the preacher. Almost zero. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I took Chuck a little bit off guard there. Um, as we were talking, some of the things that Pastor Foster said really stood out to me. I want to share with you a couple of the quotes that he gave me during that interview. One of the things he said was, if they don't sense it, they haven't had church. And he's talking about the people in his congregation where, you know, they have this enthusiasm in their congregation. They've got this participation that happens. They've got the back and forth between the preacher and the congregation. They've got the the people jumping up and down and clapping. They've got the celebratory music. And the phrase he used was, if they don't sense it, they haven't had church. And the truth of the matter is, I've experienced that in every church. In every church context, in every church culture, I was once in a church that everything was super, super precise and quiet, and the organ was doing all the work, and, and the piano was doing all the work, and the people weren't really participating much at all, and I remember one of the Sundays in that environment hearing someone say, listen, that organ was just off key, and so uh, I, that didn't even feel like church, or something along those lines. The the idea is that we all have our own sense of what church is supposed to be like, and if we don't feel it, then we haven't had it. Worship, something I'm going to say frequently today, worship is an oddly selfish endeavor. I say oddly selfish because it shouldn't be selfish, and yet a lot of times we, we let it be so. James also said, now these days there's almost zero interaction. In other words, they used to have this really vibrant thing going on, and now there's almost zero interaction. And the question is, has their church died? Has church dissipated? Has church disappeared? Or is something else going on? He said this, when we first got back in the building, we had about 20 people the first Sunday, then it dwindled down to just a handful. You see, if they're not sensing it, they're not having church. And if they're not having church, why bother going to church? In their context, they're doing live, in-person worship from their church building. And they're opening the doors and letting people come in as long as they practice social distancing. And in their building, they've got enough space for all their people to be spread all around. And so they've been doing that ever since October, he said. But there's that picture that worship is an oddly selfish moment. If it's not meeting my needs the way I feel like it should meet my needs, then maybe it's not worship at all. Strangely enough, there's a passage in the Bible that expresses this odd selfishness when it comes to worship. I want to take you to it. It's in Psalm 42. It says, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, God. My God, my soul thirsts for you, God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night. While people say to me all day long, where is your God? The writer of this psalm is not David. This psalm was written by the sons of Korah. We don't know which one of the sons or which group it was. But the sons of Korah were the worship leaders of the temple day throughout the time of the temple. And they continued to be songwriters and, and worship developers even after the temple was destroyed, even after the people left Jerusalem. And so we don't know when this passage was written. We just know here is a person who longs for God, who's hungry for God, and people around him are saying, hey, listen, where is God these days? If you still want to believe in God, why? You know, what's the evidence here? Here's a person who's hungry and thirsty for God, but look what they say next in verse four. It says, these things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the mighty one with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng. His heart longs for God, but the thing that he's missing is the experience 
of worship. The thing he's missing is going to the house of God. Now we understand that probably this was written when they were in exile. This probably was written after the temple was destroyed. This probably was written after the people in Jerusalem were shipped off into into a foreign land of Babylon and then later it would be Persia. And here's the deal. This guy is saying, I long for God, but what I really miss is the experience of worship. What I really miss is the house of God. What I really miss is understanding God's protection. I don't have to fight with other foreign powers or anything. And and what I understand is shouts of joy. And what I understand is praise. And what I understand is festivities. Worship is oddly selfish. You see, the truth about worship is that it is simultaneously all about God and yet so addictive to us. I shared Psalm 42 with you because I've shared with you before how important Psalm 42 is to me personally. I told you before that when I was a kid, my dad was a pastor, and I always thought that if we just stopped doing the music before he got up and talked, we'd all be home sooner. You know, if, if we could just get away from this hymnal, piano, organ thing, just let my dad get up on the stage and say what he wanted to say, then we'd all be able to go home sooner. That's what I thought. Music to me was a waste of time. I didn't like radio music. Back then, so today I I told people that I'd still listen to podcasts a lot. Back then, I only listened to talk cassettes. I would get comedy cassettes with people who would just be talking, and it would be like comedic routines, and I would listen to those things. I never listened to music because I thought music was a waste of, of time. Time and energy. And I remember longing for God in my life more when I was around a ninth grader. And I said this thing to God and a promise to God. I was like, God, I just long for you. I want to know you. I'm just going to go ahead and say yes to whatever opportunity you bring my way. And later on that week, I was at a chapel service for my Christian school and they were singing a song. And I said, Okay, God, you gave me an opportunity here to sing and I've never done this. So let's just go ahead and do it. So I sang out loud. And finally, for the first time in my life, I began to connect with the words of the music, connect with the words of the psalm, because that song that I sang, the first song I ever sang from my heart, was, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs for you. And it was in that moment that the words of the song and the words of the psalm connected with me, and I realized that there are people before me who have hungered and thirsted for God. And they found him. But at the same time, it was very easy for me to get addicted to worship then through music. As if music was the thing that meant worship. And there have been many times in my life when I've been in a church environment and if the music wasn't right, I didn't feel like I'd had church. Worship is an oddly selfish thing. Here's the way, uh, if you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. Human experiences of God's presence come with crutches. Every single time we experience God's presence, there's some sort of crutch that's associated with that. In the Old Testament, God created an entire system for it intentionally. There was the tabernacle and later the temple. There was the sacrificial system. There were the altars. There were the things the priests wore. Listen, God doesn't need the priest to wear a turban for God to be happy with him. Humans need the priest to wear a turban so that they recognize he's a different sort of person. God doesn't need a temple built by human hands. The Bible even tells us that. Humans need a temple so that we can have a location where it feels like God is there. Human experience of God's presence always comes with crutches. And we've all experienced the presence of God with crutches, but we don't realize that the crutches are not the presence. And in 2020, as James helped me to realize, in 2020, all of those church crutches were taken away. Just like the guy in Psalm 42, just like the guy in Psalm 42 We would say, how I remember the days when I used to go to the house of God and everything was safe and secure among the festive throng of people. Worship is an oddly selfish endeavor. It should be all about God, 
But because of the crutches that we humans need in order to experience God's presence, we sometimes rely too much on the crutch. And then worship becomes selfish. It's the selfish thing that we do. Well, I asked James to help me understand what he's learned from that, the analysis that he puts on that. And so I'm going to play with you now, play for you now what uh, he said about his analysis of worship in 2020. So then my next question would be, what lessons have you learned through that? Um, Over this last year, through 2020, um, what, what did you learn about worship as a result of this last year? Uh, one of the first things I learned about worship is, is boy, it, it pays for me to be flexible. I, I learned on that administrative job at Purdue, you got to be flexible because you have no idea what's coming uh, at you uh, per, per day with situations that you work with. And so I learned to be flexible and also uh, paying attention to the fact that this pandemic is causing people uh, to show themselves in terms of, well, exposing their commitment level. I'm thinking they're exposing their commitment level. And so now we see people with a higher commitment level who turn out to be the core people who are hanging with us, mm-hmm. even though we have a different look in terms of worship and different involvement level, different engagement and that sort of thing. And I think we're all thinking that at some point we're going to be back together again on the other side of the vaccine and that sort of thing. So we'll be able to do some things together. But until then, we got to do these things differently to keep people safe and uh, and then not spread, spread the gospel, but not spread the virus. And so we, we term it that way as well. But I see those differences. And I think uh, I know that we're not going Going to be back like we were in 2019, uh, but in some respects, I think we're going to be a little bit more wise about what we need to be focused on. You said that one of the things you learned uh, in 2020 is that it exposes people's commitment level. Um, one of the things that we use around here to talk about worship is putting God first in our lives, and um, commitment and putting God first in your life are closely related concepts. So. I wonder if you could speak a little bit to that. What have you learned this last year about what it means to put God first? I feel that I've learned that uh, putting God first, if people are intentional about doing that, I look at myself first. And I look at the fact that I have opportunity to spend more quality time with God, Uh, prayer time in his word applying as much as I can understand and what adjustments I need to make in that sort of thing. And so I want to lead my congregation to do the same thing. And as we do that as individuals, I see the fact that we'll have influence on our families. And then I look forward to the families to have influence on uh, the community and then within the church. And so uh, I'm looking at those four levels, individual, family, church, and community. And so looking at those levels, I want people to be operating from their true, strong relationship with God, being the blessing. Because my term is we are here to be a blessing to each other, one another. And let's let's keep up the one another's that God intends for us to have. It's interesting. You were saying that this pandemic season has given you more opportunities to develop that close that close relationship with God, more time to invest in his word and in prayer. And so in some respects, we should be looking at a church um, globally, or at least in this country, we should be looking at a church that is more deeply spiritual and more attuned with God than ever before. I agree. 2020 should have produced in us a very deeply worshipful people, a deeply uh, closely walking with God kind of people, spiritual people. Have you seen that? Uh, not as prevalent as I would love to see it, but I'm seeing that it just kind of, I don't know, you know how there's that, there's that saying that some people have separating the boys from the men kind of thing. And I'm seeing that the people who seem to be serious and take God serious, they seem to stand out a little bit more. So some people you've seen go deeper and yes. take advantage of this. Yes. And other people you've seen, what have they done? I've, other people I've seen shied away, drop off, and that sort of mm-hmm. thing. I've got people, you know, people who were 
pretty active in coming to the building. But boy, when it came to being on live stream, uh, they took opportunity to uh, to be absent absentees. And so I'm seeing that. And then uh, and then when asking people about uh, being committed or staying committed or what their commitment level and that sort of thing is, uh, learning that uh, people feel comfortable uh, having that distance between between them and God. Mm. And so that that bothers me uh, that they're comfortable with that because I'm thinking that God's not happy about that and they're going to suffer some consequences. So I'd like to be a part of helping them understand how they can do that and then be the blessing that God wants them to be and still do uh, some of the things that, that God allows them to be able to do. Now, for some of these people that you've seen, if if God is no longer number one in their lives, if God is no longer at that top place in their lives, what have they put there? What have you seen in some of these conversations you've had or people in your church or people that you know? What has become number one for them in this last year? For my observation, it's just life in general. Hmm. Life in general. People, I see people who they just kind of want to hang and do what they can do in terms of being, uh, what I would say, being an American in terms of I can go shopping, I can go vacation, I can go visit, those kinds of things. I want to keep uh, the eat, drink, and be merry sort of spirit mm-hmm. going. Time so, for myself. Time for myself. And so, the, yeah, exactly. Th- that would sound like selfishness <laughs> has taken the top spot. Yes, yes. That's exactly that's exactly the way I termed it uh, from some situations that I saw where people who are uh, no longer interested in being a blessing to other people. Hmm. So in some respects, what you're saying, what I'm hearing you say is that in 2020, it's really revealed the commitment level of certain people, and it's divided us. Some people have grown in their faith and gone, gotten stronger and more spiritual and more deeply connected to God directly, and other people mm-hmm. have just become more selfish and more, more in tune with their own desires and less motivated by the trappings of church, almost yes. as if we could see that their worship beforehand was for show. And maybe not real. It, am I expressing it right? What you what you've seen? Yes, uh, I would have to say it in, in those terms because uh, people would come and they would uh, express their commitment to God in different ways. Uh, but at the same time, we know that that was just in the church worship setting, and we don't know what was going on in life. The way I would put it, Monday through Saturday. Yeah, and uh, and so. Uh, people turn out to, uh, I think the 2020 exposed that selfishness because that's basically what it turned out to be. So that last line that he gave me was something that really challenged me. 2020 exposed a selfishness. I want to share with you a couple of the quotes. First of all, the ones that encouraged me from what James said there. He said, you have to be flexible. You have no idea what's coming at you each day. One of the lessons he learned from 2020 is a lesson he's, a lesson he's learned a long time ago, but he had to re-employ it this last year, was you have to be flexible. You have no idea what's coming at you each day. I love how at the beginning of every year, we, we dream and imagine about what that year is going to hold, and, and maybe you're optimistic or maybe you're pessimistic, but it doesn't matter if you're optimistic or pessimistic, your predictions of 2021 are going to be wrong. That's just the way it is. And so you have to be flexible because you have no idea what's coming at you. And he said that he had an opportunity to spend more quality time with God. An encouragement to me is that 2020 could have been an opportunity for me to have gone deeper in my relationship with God, for you to have gone deeper in your relationship with God. James was grateful that he had that opportunity this last year to spend more quality time with God. And I don't know if that's an opportunity that I took enough advantage of. James also said some things that were quite challenging, though. He said 2020 separated the boys from the men. They've taken the eat, drink, and be merry approach. 2020 exposed our selfishness. This is probably just as much true about me and you and everybody around us. 2020 really separated the people who were committed to God 
and the people who were committed to the worship crutches, the things that had propped up their experience of God. It's a challenging thing to think through, but it's also a biblical thing to think through. Let me take you back to that verse that we just looked at from Psalm 42, verse 4. He said, these are the things I remember as as I pour out my soul, how I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the mighty one with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng. Worship is an oddly selfish thing. It's supposed to be about putting God first, and yet there's so much of it that we can turn into selfishness. And so what the writer of this psalm does next is something that is so profound, we all need to do it on a regular basis. Take a look at this in verse 5. He says, why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. This is amazing. He's actually chastising his own soul. His soul has just been complaining. Oh God, why? Why am I so distant from you? Why am I so distant from your temple? Yada, yada, yada. Now, of course, if this is written in the time of exile, there's a clear reason. It's because God is punishing them. I don't know exactly what the situation is around this particular psalm. We don't have a a good proof of the historical context of it. But here's the deal. He's now chastising himself. And he says, hang on a second, soul. Why are you so upset? Why are you so depressed? Why are you so disturbed? Okay, so you can't go to the temple. Big deal. Why are you so upset? Okay, so you're not surrounded by a crowd of people. Big deal. Why are you so upset? Okay, so you're not part of a festive parade. Big deal. Why are you so upset? For crying out loud, put your hope in God. Don't put your hope in a temple. Don't put your hope in a crowd. Don't put your hope in a people. Put your hope in God. For I will yet praise him. And now he says, I'm going to change the script. I'm going to stop being so down on what I'm missing. And I'm going to change the script to focus on what I have. I have God. And I will praise him. He is my savior and my God. Three concepts. I will praise him. That means I am going to stop putting down my circumstances. And I'm going to start lifting up God. Just because of who he is. And he is my savior which means I'm not relying on all the other things around here to be my Savior. He's my Savior, and He's my God, which means I'm not going to let anything else be more important to me than Him. Soul, why are you so messed up? I'm going to put my hope in God. So what if I've missed all these other things? Well, I asked James what he plans to do moving forward. And... I think it's probably appropriate for me to share that with you now. So let me ask you then, um, hindsight and all that, if, there's, if you could go back to James Foster in 2020 in March, okay, <laughs> and give him some advice on how he needs to pastor his church, um, what would you say to, to 2020 March James Foster? I think the thing that I would do different going back to March 1st, knowing what I know now, would be to be a little bit more forceful in teaching people to prepare themselves uh, to to be, what, stronger in their relationship with God for anything that could happen, for whatever could happen. Because to me, I'm thinking, boy, I should, I, I would focus more on making sure people know that uh, the way God, well, God is, is letting us know that this world is not going to be the same years from now the way it is now before it comes to an end. Mm. And it, there could be a lot more challenges that people have to go through in that. So, so I would want to be more active in getting people more prepared for what's to come in terms of the end of times. Mm. So looking beyond just the hardship that people faced in 2020. Oh, yes. But you're, you're saying you would have you would have wanted to prepare people more for the fact that in eternal perspective, it's going to get worse before it gets better. Exactly. And so if I, I'm thinking if I can get them ready for the eternal, with the eternal perspective, that would have them prepared for whatever is in between. I lost two siblings to COVID uh, in 2020. Uh, Tamitra and I 
were close to losing our own lives in a car accident in 2020, head-on collision, and see that we could have been gone in an instant had that gone different than the way it went. And we came out with just scratches and bruises. And, and, uh, and so to me, God seems to be getting my attention about the fact that uh, there is a, there's an urgency that needs to be continued, developed, and, and, and focused on uh, for people to give God a chance, for people to believe in him. There's an urgency for me to do whatever I can to let people know believing in God is the right thing to do. We aren't guaranteed tomorrow. We are not guaranteed tomorrow. And that makes us urgent <laughs> to help other people realize that there's urgency in their lives exactly, too. Exactly, exactly. And, and I am appalled at the people who don't seem to be sensitive to these thousands of lives that are being lost by this virus. Mm. And the insensitivity that's showing up in just a little thing of not wanting to wear a mask, not wanting to do the social distancing, and that selfishness overpowering those kinds of things. And so the lack of value of lives of other people I'm just, it's just, it's it's kind of mind blowing for Mm. me to see it is much more work that needs to be done to give, to get people to give God a chance. Yeah. John would say that, how can you love the God that you haven't seen if you can't love the brother that you can see? Exactly. Um, This is how we know we love God and that we belong to him, (laughs) that we love one another. Uh, I'm with you on that, that putting God first requires me to love my neighbor Mm -hmm. because he loves them exactly no matter what he looks like yeah (laughs) or what he thinks he believes in in. uh, yeah 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 we're so quick to focus on those differences but boy my goodness if god made a person that person is important enough to him ought to be important enough to me hearing james share those thoughts that he had had siblings who died of COVID and he's still confused about why we aren't more eager to care for one another during this difficult time. It really struck a chord with me that this is personal to him in a lot of ways. But I want to share with you some of the quotes that he gave me that uh, were kind of encouraging, first of all. Here he said, I want to give people an eternal perspective. There's an urgency for me to do whatever I can to let people know believing in God is the right thing to do. This last year helped James to realize we aren't guaranteed tomorrow. None of us is guaranteed another day, and none of us is guaranteed that that other day will be pleasant, even if we get that other day. And so he said, I want to give people an eternal perspective. I want to help people have that perspective that, listen, life is brief. And so there's an urgency in us to do whatever we can to let people know that believing in God is the right thing to do. But then he said this, I'm appalled by the selfishness of people and the lack of value placed on the lives of other people. Here's one of the biggest things about you thinking you might get into heaven. It's easy for us to say, God, I'm going to put you first in my life because I want to get into heaven. I want to have an eternal perspective that is entirely selfish. But there is a world of people around us. And if God is offering the gift of salvation to me through the death of his son, then that means God is offering the gift of salvation to all the people around me through the death of his son. And if I know that Jesus has saved me, and if I know that my eternity is secure, then I should not be a person who's worried about myself. An eternal perspective is no longer about me. An eternal perspective is all about the people around me. James said this at the end. He actually said this at the beginning, but I, I needed to think about it at the end. I should have been more forceful, telling people to be stronger in their relationship with God, to be prepared for hardship. You see, the difference between my natural tendency and the lesson that James learned this last year 
is that even though he was appalled by the selfishness and even though he was upset by all this other stuff that was going on, what he says he should have done more of is to forcefully tell people to just have a better relationship with God. I'm more inclined to be forceful to tell people how they should change their behaviors. I'm more inclined to be forceful in telling people what they did wrong and what needs to be done differently. But James says, I wish I had been more forceful in telling people to be stronger in their relationship with God, to be prepared for hardship. Whether that hardship comes to you or to someone around you, it's the relationship with God that is the thing that you need, the thing that I need. I'll put it to you this way. A strong relationship with God strengthens us. I said this, that worship is an oddly selfish thing, and sometimes that odd selfishness is us saying, I'm paying more attention to the crutches of worship than I am to the God behind the worship. But there is a selfish part of worship that is actually God-ordained. It's the fact that when I get closer to God, I become more the person I'm supposed to be. When I have a strong relationship with God, I have the strength I'm supposed to have. Nowhere is this more visible than in Jesus' own words. In the world's most worshipful prayer that has ever been prayed, we read these words. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives and his disciples followed him. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Here is the selfishness. Jesus could have said, Father, I don't want to go through with this. I'm done. He could have said, Father, all of the trappings of me and my relationship with you are gone. I used to be in heaven in perfect fellowship with you. And now I'm on this dirty earth and I'm sick of it. I'm sick of touching lepers. I'm sick of experiencing colds. I'm sick of all this stuff. Jesus could have said that. I'm done, let alone going to the cross the very next day. And he says, if you are willing, take this cup from me. He still says, I want the cup to be gone, but Jesus doesn't do what we would have done. Jesus doesn't say, I'm done with it all. Jesus says, it's still up to you, God. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. This is the most worshipful prayer ever prayed. Because Jesus says, Father, you come first. Father, you come first. Would you like to know what happens next? Immediately next. Verse 43, Luke tells us this. An angel from heaven appeared to him, And strengthened him. Now, I have prayed prayers before and haven't seen an angel in response to them. Honestly, I don't know if this angel appeared to Jesus in a visible form or if he somehow appeared to him in a way that Jesus felt in his spirit. I don't know. But the angel came and strengthened him. And you might say, oh yeah, well that's Jesus. Of course, the Father would want to strengthen Jesus. Remember, the Father is also allowing Jesus to go to the cross. Remember, Jesus is going through a difficult circumstance in his life and he literally prayed, I don't want to do it. God, if it's your will, take it away from me. Father, if it's your will, take it away from me. But the Father says, I'm going to strengthen you in it. Strengthen you for it and strengthen you through it. And so Jesus prays the most worshipful prayer ever and he gets what he didn't ask for, but what he desperately needed. Strength. A strong relationship with God strengthens us. I said it before, I'll say it again. Worship is an oddly selfish thing. And because it's an oddly selfish thing, we can too easily turn it into a fully selfish thing. We can make worship all about me and my feelings and my experiences and whether or not things are going right for me and whether or not all my worship crutches are in their proper place at the right time. Or we can make worship all about God. It's all about you, God. It's all about what you want to do. It's all about what you're up to in this world and in my life and in my heart. And I can drive myself deeper into relationship with God. And I can pursue that. And lo and behold, when I do that, I get strengthened. 
We've all had those moments where we've worshipped authentically. And in those moments, we've felt strength. But somehow along the journey, we've allowed the strength to be associated with the thing that helped us do the worship and not the God behind the worship himself. I don't want that to be true of my life going forward. I don't want 2021 to be a life of of trying to pursue the crutches. I want 2021 to be a year of me pursuing God. And in the process, I know I'm going to reap some benefit. There is a selfish benefit, in a sense, to worship, that he will give me the strength, but I will never, I don't ever want to make worship about the crutches that helped me get to that place. For Jesus, what strengthened him was not kneeling in a garden. What strengthened him was not being surrounded by his disciples. What strengthened him was not the particular nature of the Mount of Olives and some spiritual characteristic of that place. What strengthened him was the Father directly who heard his prayer, who saw his worship, and said, I will strengthen you myself. The way we say it around here, In every aspect of my life, God comes first. His word is my only authority. His son is my only salvation. His glory is my greatest desire. I give him the first of my every opportunity. And if 2021 brings an opportunity into your life, we need to give it to God. I want to encourage you to join us today for our Zoom chat. We're just going to get together, chat about what things God has put on our hearts, pray for each other, and that'll be it. But then each morning for the next 21 days, well, I guess next 20 days, we are going to be doing something on our YouTube live stream, our YouTube channel, uh, each morning. We're going to post a little video each morning at 6 a.m. to encourage you to have 21 days of prayer and reflection. And so I want to encourage you to start 2021 with 21 days of prayer. Starting today, you've already done day number one at least a little bit. Spend some time in prayer and conversation with us in a few minutes in our Zoom chat. And then also join us tomorrow morning and every other day for the next 20 days as we spend some time focusing our heart on God. Thanks for listening to this message from Lafayette Community Church. We are all about helping you live the life you were made to live. God made you. God loves you. And his plans for you are perfect. So if you are anywhere near Lafayette, Indiana, join us this weekend at one of our worship gatherings. And wherever you are, check us out online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com.